what I was told by my first supervisor was to leave your stuff at the door. Well, she said, leave your shit at the door, which I thought was <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Yes. That's a plan. Like, yeah, I'll leave my, I'll leave my stuff at the door. And then I remember like it was yesterday sitting in the classroom going, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I'm going to do that. And then pausing. I'm like, how do I do that? But I was too embarrassed to ask the follow-up question. Well, folks, the original recordings of this podcast ended at the two-year mark in May of 2023. I find myself surrounded by special people who have asked that we put the podcast on simmer instead of taking it away completely. I've also gotten feedback that our regular followers didn't know about certain episodes. There are so many and so many good ones. So as I'm the cast iron skillet and Abby is the Instapot, we have a new sous chef, Kate, who's added her own seasoning. Kate said, we've done our meal prep and our summer episodes are in the freezer ready for consumption at any time. So we're going to roll out our favorites every other week instead of every week. And you're going to see Kate's picks and Jana's picks and Royce's picks and Hannah's picks and many others. Thanks to this new crew who are persistent in making sure that this podcast does not completely go away. I'm grateful to each of you and what you have contributed. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Welcome, Adela France, to the Seasoned Arty Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, we are we are beyond excited. So I am with we are with Sarah Borski today, who is our co-host extraordinaire instead of Abby Brown, who's our typical co-host. So thank you, Sarah, for joining us too. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> All right, mountains or beach? Beach. That was fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I live in the mountains, I just love the water. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. And I have another question for you. Breakfast or dinner? Breakfast. Oh man, that was really fast. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> why was that so fast? I mean, it's the first meal of the day. It gets me going and I love mornings. You know, mornings are my time to collect my thoughts, connect with my heart. So breakfast is definitely my favorite meal of the day. All right. Audio book or paper book? Paper. I have not been able to complete an audio book. <laughs> yeah, I just love the paper. And also I'm, I'm, I'm so tied to my electronics, you know, and it's something that I'm really trying to work on. And so I, I kind of, I can't imagine bringing in one more, one more reason for me to be tied to an electronic mm. so books, paper books is the way for me. That sounds amazing. And that's the part of this is kind of bridging the gap of, of what's occurred in the eating disorders world of technology. Back then we didn't have 
audiobooks. We didn't have Kindles or electronic books. And so, yeah, that's a way of un- unpacking. So you are a f- PhD, and I, I hope this doesn't traumatize you too much, but I'd like to bring you back to a board exam of some sort, a licensure exam. What do you remember about that day? Was it written or was it computer? Actually, the final board exam that I completed was oral. Oh. And yeah, it was really, really scary because at that time, I don't know if they still do it this way, but they wanted to determine that you were ready for autonomous practice. And they wanted to determine that you, in the context of autonomous practice, could have your own thoughts and opinions and stand by them, but supported, you know, by research or or scientific or practice. And so they would ask me questions, but then they would be like, are you sure? Are you really sure? What about this? Or what about that? And I don't know about, you know, others who've gone through the PhD process, but I did not feel ready <laughs> to be 100% certain about anything. In fact, I still don't feel ready. And so it was an incredibly challenging situation because I didn't have the opportunity. I didn't have the capacity to assess how I was doing, yeah. you know? So it was quite, uh, it was quite a vulnerable experience. And I'm very glad for that part of my life to be behind me. And and I know our listeners can't see you, but the way that you said, are you ready? You were like, they were baiting you almost like, come on. Yes. Yes. That's right. And how can you feel ready when you're under stress like that? No, oh, they did not know Dan Siegel's work, you know? No, they did not. <laughs> All right. Well, how did you get into eating, well, psychology as a field and then eating disorders? You know, the best and most important advice my parents gave me was to follow my heart. And I thought forever that I would become an elementary school teacher, high school teacher. And I went to university and I didn't know what to take. And so my mom just said to me, she's like, just take courses that seem interesting to you and then let it unfold from there. And so my first year, I took a number of very general courses, psychology, sociology, French grammar, like some really into languages and and, uh, linguistics and philosophy anyways. And I spent that first year kind of exploring and I had this really wonderful psychology professor who was, was really committed to experiential learning. And so I don't know that I was in love with psychology or experiential learning, but the combo won me over. And so I wanted to take every class he'd ever, you know, he taught on the roster and, but I also loved languages. And so I ended up doing a double specialization in psychology and languages, which led me to do a master's in psycholinguistic research because I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so I was studying second language learning in mostly new immigrants to Canada. And that was great. I loved it. And so then I ended up doing a PhD in school and child clinical psychology, thinking that I would be a school psychologist, which that was my first job as a school psychologist. But then when I had to complete my pre-doctoral internship, I was matched through this really complex matching system nationally to a children's hospital in Canada, in Ottawa, Ontario. And I had to select two major rotations, one in an area where I had strengths 
and one in an area I knew nothing about. And the area that they ended up selecting for me based on my profile that I knew nothing about was eating disorders. And my first, my first reaction when they told me that I would be placed in the eating disorder rotation was dread because I had all kinds of internalized stigma relating to what that meant, both in terms of working with youth with eating disorders, but also their parents. I was very intimidated by that, scared by that. And so I showed up for my first day. And I think on my first day I had to do meal support. And it was just That's so intense. It was so intense. It was so intense. But I fell in love with the work <laughs> and with the youth and with their families. And the other piece was I was so perplexed by eating disorders that the experience of, of trying to understand like not just what's going on, but how best to help ended up really fueling me. And so it, it became the focus for the next five years of my career. And when I got my first job as a psychologist, I only applied to eating disorder programs, actually. Wow. It was so clear that that's okay. what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's where I wanted to make contributions. You know, there's been several of our guests who have started out thinking they wanted to do elementary or high school teaching or were school mm -hmm. counselors even. So it is, it, I, we, I'm just so grateful. I always want to express gratitude, but I'm always so grateful when people, when the universe brings someone like you to the field. So you mentioned something about languages, and I know this isn't our topic, but I teach a graduate elective course, and I have a, a student whose English is a second language, and they're all professionals in that class. So they're, it's, they're in graduate level, but they're all mm -hmm. most registered dietitians. Okay. English as a second language. And I, I do not know how people do that in a medical sense as well, just in, in general conversation. The cognitive load is so heavy that God. we don't appreciate very often what it's like for our colleagues to have to manage the cognitive load of a yeah. second language in addition to the challenges that we're faced occupationally. Yeah. So I'm, I, for this person who I just love and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to help them because you can use Grammarly and I'm kind of a stickler when it comes to pronunciations, but mostly grammar and spelling, especially if you're going to get up and talk to folks. So I'm recognizing the cognitive load of this time of the semester where it's, you know, before the holidays, but then there's tests and they've got other classes and their, their jobs. I think I'm going to do a recording because she can't join in any of my office hours, but a recording of me going into Grammarly and seeing what I'm seeing and helping her. She just said, thank you so much for just you know, for seeing that she's, she's a perfectionist, she says, which how many people are so many. And it's hard because she can't speak at what she really feels. That's right. And there's still so much stigma actually in our culture related to spelling and grammar. Mm -hmm. People make all kinds of judgments and assumptions about others, you know, depending on how they present, you know, an oral or written form. And my stepdaughter has a learning disability that significantly affects her written expression. And so 
I'm particularly in touch with that because like you, I really appreciate grammar and spelling. And also I don't want anyone to be discriminated against, you know, because of their limitations or difficulties expressing themselves in what we consider the dominant language. Mm -hmm. You know, Sarah, you put your hand over your heart and I'm not um, making you speak, but you, when she said learning disability, I have a son with a learning disability as well and a writing disability, which which impacts that. And, and I often keep that in mind when working with patients and, and giving handouts and trying to take that into consideration because with a malnourished brain that right. also presents the limitations. And I often wonder if it's much in the same way. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about a malnourished brain and what you guys notice with malnourishment in any size body? Yeah, well, I guess the feature that I I kind of have noted in terms of implications the most often is difficulties with cognitive flexibility, you know, and, and that can be, that can make navigating life really challenging. It can make navigating relationships, you know, really challenging. And I don't know that people talk about this as a correlate of cognitive flexibility, but my belief is that trust is also a lot harder to establish when we have a brain that is less flexible, you know, either due to malnutrition or other, you know, other factors. So I, I, I would, I would appreciate if we spent more time as a field kind of exploring what it's like for people who are struggling with a less flexible brain, not just in in their capacity to like engage in set shifting or uh, future oriented thoughts, but also in the context of, of being able to build and maintain or strengthen trusting relationships. Mic drop. I mean, (laughs) We're going to have so many of those in here, but I, I I take notes as we're talking problems with cognitive flexibility and your belief, and you've used that several times, even before we hit record. I really love that, the word and instead of but, and it's my belief. It's like there's no, you're not just trying to cram something in. It's really your belief and your experience, but that trust is harder to establish. Mm-hmm. And I think that the people who are coming to me lately are folks who have been through the system, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They're struggling with severe and enduring, and I'm using a medicalized term, eating disorder or severe and enduring, Sean, CEA, SEAN, anorexia nervosa. And that trust is something that I work very, very hard in the beginning to just be there with them for them. But I don't know, you know, it's really just letting them know I'm going to be with them through thick and thin. And this is the hard part because I worry about them medically. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, and these people, they have reason to mistrust. If I look at the clinical practice guidelines, just since I've been in this field, I mean, they have changed so much. I remember when I first started as a psychologist, I was reviewing some of the family manuals and the messaging in those family manuals were not just different, but in direct opposition of what came later, 
you know, and then it's like, okay, well now this is what we believe is to be, is true. And so if, if you're a person who's been having to obtain support from, you know, the system, especially over a long period of time, then I could see that it would, could be really challenging to trust not just individuals, but systems, treatment approaches, because we're in a constant state of evolution. And so it's like, okay, well, how do we know that this is it? And the truth is we don't. No. We don't. Like I was saying earlier, I mean, there are things that I've shared on podcasts just like last year that I, I no longer agree with myself, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, it's not that long ago. No. And so then trust, it's like, it's like in, trust becomes important in the present moment. Like, can ah. I trust you in this moment? I don't yeah. need to necessarily trust the treatment course in its entirety, mm-hmm. you know, because of what I've been through and how hard it's been and how vulnerable I feel. But can I, can I trust this? Can I trust you this week, next week, you know, and take it from there? This moment and that constant state of evolution is what this podcast is about. It's like when 30 years ago, when I started in the field, parents were the problem and we had to give them, empower the, the teen and we have to, it's, it's middle, upper class, white women, females that are, you know, all the stuff that that thankfully Dr. Bulick and all of her group Mm -hmm. um, helped us understand. And my, one of my favorite of the nine truths is families can be the best allies. Right. That's right. I'm a firm believer in that. And they need our help. They do. Us to believe in them and they need us to hold up, hold them when they're struggling to show up in the ways that they want to, in in terms of their best selves, you know, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very strong and active parent caregiver advocate for those reasons. Mm-hmm. Like eating disorders are expressions of, of illness that are so complex. You know, we're just beginning to kind of get a handle on the complexity. And so I kind of, I think about eating disorders, like within, within the individual, within the family system, within the last three generations, Mm -hmm. and then overlaid on top of that in the context of the social, political, cultural issues that have influenced that, that system, you know? So it's like, wow, how can we, how can we pinpoint like what this is? Yeah. I remember a mentor saying it's like a puzzle, like a thousand piece puzzle, (laughs) you know, eating disorders are. And so Mm -hmm. it's not one piece. Adele, I had a question about EFFT, emotion-focused family therapy. I've recently taken your training with that. I'm a practitioner who practices FBT, and it was recommended to me that if if I'm going to be working with with families and dealing with parents of, of adolescents to take this training because we can run into blocks with the parents. Yeah. But what I've also learned is we can learn run into blocks with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Beth is also my supervisor for mm-hmm. my eating disorder training. And we have gone through clinician blocks for me where I'm running into those blocks as she has done those exercises with me. I have yet to do those exercises with families. I think this is going to be a really helpful tool, but I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about what what drove you to come up with a tool like this? Oh, I mean, helplessness, honestly, that's what drove me <laughs> to, you know, for my contributions and development of the model over the years. I too uh, began as an FBT therapist when FBT was very new on the scene. And I felt that it 
it was revolutionary and extremely positive, especially given the shift from parent blame and parentectomies to leveraging the love and the neurobiological uh, power, you know, of, of, of parents' supportive efforts. But I was also working in higher levels of care. And so, and FBT was developed as an outpatient treatment modality, but we didn't know what else to do, you know, in the higher levels of care. So we adapted FBT to higher levels of care. In fact, I published with some colleagues uh, adapting FBT to day treatment, you know, to partial hospitalization. But even then we would encounter situations where the resources that were available at that time and my understanding of the model at that time made it so that I didn't know how to handle situations where, you know, as much as I tried to empower the parents, they did not feel empowered. Or as much as I encouraged them to support their child with meal support or symptom interruption, they they weren't able to do it somehow, you know? And I was like, okay, well, what is going on? And I was raised as a psychologist in the humanistic tradition where we believe that everyone wants to do well and be well. And so I was like, okay, well, how do I explain the behavior of a parent who's actively criticizing their child's body or who's actively encouraging them to restrict food or, you know, eat diet foods or whatever, like that, and that was a real challenge. I'm like, how do I bridge this? And so I was really inspired by emotion theory first by Dr. Leslie Greenberg, who's the developer of emotion focused therapy but then by Daniel Siegel, who we're talking about, who Daniel Siegel in particular was talking about when emotions are high, and he spoke more about kids, but the brain works similarly across the lifespan. When emotions are high, then you lose access to capacities for reasoning, to flexibility, creativity, problem solving. You can't even remember things you've learned before. And so if I am sufficiently stressed, I can't recall my name, you know, (laughs) and some parents in particular, when we were giving them this new role, you know, became extra stressed because they were afraid of doing it wrong or causing more problems or they already blamed themselves for what was going on. So they couldn't wrap their head around like how they could be an important part of the solution. And in that state of hyperarousal or in that state of nervous system dysregulation, then they would sometimes engage in reactive or impulsive behaviors as a means to regulate. So for example, the most important scenario that I witnessed as a psychologist in those early days was a parent who could not support her daughter to eat more on passes while she was in hospital for medical instability. And I kept trying to problem solve, you know, this, this thing that was repeating itself over and over again. And one day in session, it finally occurred to me what was happening. And I said to the mom, I said, I have a feeling that you may be worried that if you push your daughter too hard with this food stuff, that she might become suicidal. And instantly the three weeks of butt heading, like uh, butting heads with, with her came into focus. And I was like, oh my gosh, I totally missed the boat. This wasn't an issue of mom not getting it. That wasn't an issue of mom not being motivated. Mom was scared that if she did this, that a far worse outcome 
you know, could be on the table, so to speak. And that moment changed everything in terms of the course of the work. We're like, okay, now what's the real problem? Not trying to convince you to do the meal support, the real, the or the solution rather. My belief is the real solution is to help you with your fear that's paralyzing you, you know, that's making it so that you're less flexible or less creative or more impulsive in your responses. Mm. And so EFFT was developed for two, well, at the beginning, in the beginning, it was really just two modules in the beginning. It was one teaching parents emotion-focused communication strategies to help reduce resistance in their children related to meal support and symptom interruption or just overall receiving of care. And then the second area at that time that was, you know, that we were working on was developing tools and techniques to help parents and caregivers recognize when they were hijacked by their emotions. Mm -hmm. And then from there, engage in simple, but hopefully effective strategies to help extricate themselves from the rock and the hard place, you know, do I feed her or not? If I do, she might die, you know, by suicide. Mm -hmm. So finding ways to help them to be released from that mind trap, honestly. And then from there, we developed, you know, additional modules that round out the model today in ways that we felt could be helpful and supplementary in, in a supplementary manner, including the development of the clinician block module when clinicians are stuck in, you know, in themselves or in this imagined or real rock in a hard place where they are in a, in a state of projection or reactivity that's affecting their clinical care. And when I first started off as a psychologist, what I was told by my first supervisor, actually I was still in grad school what I was told by my first supervisor was to leave your stuff at the door. Well, she said, leave your shit at the door, which I thought was (laughs) kind of funny. (laughs) And I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Yes. That's a plan. Like, yeah, I'll leave my, I'll leave my stuff at the door. And then I remember like it was yesterday sitting in the classroom going, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I'm going to do that. And then pausing. I'm like, how do I do that? But I was too embarrassed to ask the follow-up question. And so I just had to like, be quiet and go underground with this question. You know, how do I actually do that? And now I'm learning from my SE colleagues, somatic experiencing colleagues, but also what we're learning about the brain and the nervous system is like, it's actually not possible to do that. And so as clinicians, not only is it normal for these reactivities to occur, but we deserve help. You know, yeah. And so, like, I want it to be so that not only is it totally normal to say, "Oh, I'm triggered by this dad," and because of that, I don't return his calls as quickly as I do other parents, or I'm triggered by this mom, and so I end up lecturing her more often about the downsides of her ways rather than tending to the pain, you know, that's fueling it. Can I get some help, please? You know? Yeah. yeah so that it's okay just, to admit to that. It is. And we as professionals deserve help. Like that's how right. do the helpers help others is getting their own help and and having that consistent. So oh my gosh. And I I you know helping with the fear and seeing that in that uh, that patient, that mom 
does this, because we're talking a lot about moms and teens, does this work with older people? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You know, that it was probably the more challenging time in my career when I was trying to <laughs> convince <laughs> clinicians of older clients that these same processes were relevant across the lifespan. But yeah, like I've worked with parents, spouses, you know, of individuals mm-hmm. in their 20s, 30s, 40s, okay, even 50s, you know, and and we are more alike than we are different in terms of brain functioning, especially impact of emotion on how we show up, you know, day to day, especially in higher stress situations. Mm, okay. So I have, a, I have a question for you then, mm-hmm. and this is a scenario. Um, a client who is in their twenties has a good supportive partner has been to all the treatment programs. I mean, the highest levels of care all the way and came to me saying, I can't do this anymore, mm-hmm. but I'm scared. And I cannot go, I cannot return to a higher level of care. I cannot do it. Mm-hmm. So my my question for you is how do we as clinicians, besides as a dietitian, making sure that she's got her therapist that I'm in communication with and a good medical doctor mm-hmm. who can sit with the discomfort that I think medical doctors aren't allowed to I'm using quotes, fire their patients. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so they also don't want to give up on their patients. Um, But just the pain and suffering that happens in my office around food and eating. And if I exercise, if I eat more, I need to exercise more. And and I see no version of myself that will um, be better in the future. Well, you know, I I hear that scenario um, in two different ways. I'll start with the meta. I would want to hear and listen deeply to the reasons why this person feels like they can no longer return to a higher level of care. I want to hear about what they're, and listen deeply to their experiences, to what feels impossible. And as a, as a field, I want us to take that really, really seriously to see how we can evolve um, higher, the treatment provided in higher levels of care, not because it's bad, but because we are in a constant state of evolution. And our clients, even though their brains may be impaired by malnutrition, can teach us a lot about um, what they might need. For example... Uh, I'm doing some research right now on love. And um, I, I spoke with a, a, a woman in her 20s who had, who had been in a lot of treatment. And um, what she shared with me was that she didn't feel the love. You know, that there were a lot of, um, and that's her experience. It doesn't mean it wasn't there, you know. But what I do know is that if I just use myself, what I was taught, about the expression of love was that you don't do it, you know? And so if you would have interviewed my clients from 10, 12 years ago, and you would have said like, does it, did you think, did you feel Adele's love for you? 
they might've said like, oh yeah, like she was nice, kind, she listened, respectful, but I don't know that they would have been able to say that it was explicit. And I'm really, um, I'm really so grateful to Carl Rogers who coined the term unconditional positive regard at a time where cognitive therapies and behavioral therapies were recognized as the one and only, you know, and he was coming up the the pipe coming down the pipeline with uh, a different approach, a more well humanistic approach, not to say that cognitive behavioral therapies are not um, humanistic. Also, like we've all evolved, but one of his major contributions was describing this phenomenon of unconditional positive regard as a significant um, uh, uh, factor related to outcome in psychotherapy. And if you really think about the word unconditional, the term unconditional positive regard, he was talking about love. It's that he was already bringing something so freaking radical to the space that he needed to disguise it in technical terms, you know, that could feel a little bit medical, you know, yes. in order to be heard. Yeah. But he was talking about love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And I, I, I know that we'll need to be wrapping this up here in a little bit because I could talk to you forever and listen to you forever. I wore my heart on purpose today because I've seen you speak before. And that's such a message that's that's strong for me is being able to 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 be that. And I wrote down the unconditional positive regard, but it's not what I wrote down. It's what I feel. Mm-hmm. And it's what my client feels when we're together. And, and I don't have complete control over that. Like you said, you can interview people and ask them how did, how did Beth um, treat you? She was kind or whatever, but we just don't know how they're going to feel. So we have to show up as humans in the room too. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I'm toying with this new concept in order to explain, um, love as a legitimate healing technology. And what I've come up with so far, and I mean, I'm hesitant to talk about it because I'm sure it'll be really different in six months or a year from now because I'm launching a study. But for me, I think that when our when our clients, those we serve, feel our love, and I do believe that people with eating disorders have blocks to the experiencing of love. And so it needs to be more deliberate, needs to be more explicit, needs to be more passionate, you know, um, so that it can be felt. I do believe that that love ends up being chemically transformed um, into worthiness. Wow. And that if a client or so, you know someone who's struggling, who's coming for help, feels worthy, I think that'll make a huge difference in their, in their um, likelihood to ask for help, um, not just once, but continuously, you know, um, and to feel people's efforts differently than if they don't don't feel worthy and then they have, you know, that and that can show up as a block. So I do feel, and I don't know how I'm going to, how I'm going to demonstrate this scientifically. Maybe it won't be me. Maybe it'll be someone else in the next lifetime, but, or, um, you know, when I'm gone. Um, but I do think that clear, explicit, ethical, boundaried, safe expressions of love can be metabolized into worthiness. And that is an untapped process, in my opinion, at this time. 
metabolized into worthiness. I'm curious if if your experience with love uh, stems from your experience with psychedelic research yeah. and tapping into that love. Um, and can you explain first of all what what are psychedelics? Uh, you know, take us right back to the very basic. Yeah. Right I mean, who we're knows? Now. We're still figuring it out. Um, I would refer to them as mind altering substances or consciousness altering substances um, that uh, depending on which type of psychedelic we're talking about can increase uh, connectivity and communication with different parts of the brain can um, open up our capacity to experience thoughts, feelings, even, even spirituality in a way that's not available to us um, in normal states of consciousness. And I've, I've been studying the potential for psychedelics in the treatment of eating disorders specifically since 2014. And I've interviewed individuals with eating disorders who's, who've used psychedelics. I've interviewed people who've been the ones offering the psychedelics, you know, a guide through guidance. And now I'm part of formal research studies that are looking at um, what might be possible with psychedelics. And there is so much to say about this topic, including the potential role that psychedelics could play in supporting decisions related to medical assisted dying. Um, one feature that one factor that runs across each of these domains, well, two, I'll say two factors that runs across each of these domains that I think the field of eating disorders could learn from is the power of um, psychedelic induced experiences of love for self, from others, uh, for others, as well as uh, spiritual or transpersonal experiences. And when I look at where we're at as a field, I see these two areas as ripe with potential, you know, that we could really kind of learn more about like, okay, how can we translate this into a conventional eating disorder program? How can we translate this knowledge that we're gleaning from psychedelic medicine in particular related, related to eating disorders to improve the way we um, serve those who are struggling the most, you know? So yeah. Gosh, I mean, in 10 years from now, I hope we can have uh, um, another opportunity to chat. The three of us, I'm yeah. not even joking. Uh, okay. okay. You know, to be like, <laughs> wow, look at where we are now. Look at yeah. what's going on now. It's amazing. The potential, not for everyone. We have a long way to go to determine mm-hmm. risk profiles, um, to determine what types of psychedelics might be more appropriate based on someone's uh, the difficulties that they're faced with, but um, it's it's uh, it's an avenue that is giving me so much hope and, and energy. Hope is huge. <laughs> I mean, um, I just lost my thought. Hope hope is huge. Dang it! I knew I was Royce. Cut this out. <laughs> um, I think I was going to go into the last question to, just to kind of wrap it up because that, do you have it? Well, not the last question. I have two questions. One is, are you in need of subjects? Because this is a podcast for professionals. Um, we, we have a, a good following of therapists, dietitians, medical providers, 
that could help add to maybe research subjects if yeah so if people listening want to check out this website clinicaltrials.gov and you search for clinical trials related to psychedelics and eating disorders you will actually get a full list of the trials that have been registered you know fda approved for example yep um and it'll it'll state if they are actively recruiting or not Okay. And, you know, our colleagues um, at UCSD uh, have been working on this, um, on this type of research. Our colleagues at Johns Hopkins are working on this type of research at Imperial College. Um, I'm a, I'm a lead investigator with MAPS looking at MDMA assisted psychotherapy for eating disorders. We're not recruiting yet, um, but when we do, it will be listed there, but we'll also be spreading the word, you know, among us. So that we can help people find their way to these trials if geographically it makes sense um, and they meet the inclusion exclusion criteria. So grateful for you. And the final wrap up question, and this is a doozy, so take your time. If you could bring yourself back to when you started in the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you knew then that you do know now? You know, it's interesting. I wish I would have known that we have so much more to learn. Because when I was first learning, I was uh, in a student mode, you know, and so I really kind of idolized the people who were ahead of me. And, um, And not because they wanted me to, you know, but because I felt so insecure and new and green. And so I needed to look up somewhere, you know, and so I was like, oh, okay, well, that's fact, that's fact, that's fact, that's fact. And then um, probably the greatest revelation of my career so far is that uh, as as a species, we are so young. We are so young, which means that in every way, we have so much to learn and it's important to, you know, be guided by your beliefs at one time, you know, so that you can have, you can have integrity and, and, and allow that integrity to guide your work, but to hold it gently Um, because, you know, we need to also be humble when the time comes, when we realize that what we thought was true and what we said was true, what is no longer Wow. Hold it gently. Don't be attached to the outcome because things can change. Thank you, Adele and Sarah, both of you for joining me today for this episode. Oh, uh, my absolute pleasure. Really delightful to talk about, you know, these themes and thanks for being interested, you know, in, in these questions. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.